This is the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast for June 24th, 2022. I'm Sam Abuel-Samad, Guidehouse Insights, and I'm joined today by Saji Evbanada, Scott Shepard, and Joe Janata. Um, let's start with Joe this week. Joe, what's what's been going on in your area? Uh, yeah, so something I came across was uh, Honda and Sony's plan for a joint venture for uh, electric and potentially automated cars. Um so the two Japanese companies announced they plan to roll their first vehicle by 2025. Um, Honda is going to play the main role of making the vehicle itself, but Sony will provide all the software, screens, and cameras. Um, embedded in the vehicle also with the purchase is Sony's portfolio of entertainment of movies and television shows. Um Executives from both of the companies in the initial announcement have said they plan um, to potentially spin this off as its own entity, separate from the two uh, main companies. Um, this is similar to what Ford was discussing with uh, spinning off their electric vehicle offerings as a separate entity um, that they ultimately didn't follow through with. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this potential spinoff will affect Honda's operations as they are already producing uh, a number of electric vehicles currently um, in what areas the two different uh, uh, entities might market their space, market their vehicles to uh, different market segments of the electric vehicle space, whether the Honda joint venture might be more luxury vehicle focused and the Honda and the, the Honda individual entity might be more focused on their traditional vehicle offerings. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch this. Honda seems to be hedging their bets, uh, doing a, a number of parallel efforts. Um, you know, in addition to this joint venture with with Sony, um, their first well, they're already producing a couple of EVs, very uh, small EVs for the European market, um, and they're doing a pair. They're doing uh, initially two EVs with General Motors. Uh, the GM is going to be building based on their Ultium platform starting in 2024. One, the Honda is going to be a crossover called the Prologue. Uh, the Acura, there's also going to be an Acura that is as yet unnamed, um, both coming in 24. And then the, Honda also recently announced a par, uh, an expanded partnership with GM for um, smaller uh, EVs starting in 2027. And Honda's also got their own EV platform that is supposed to launch in 2026. So they're, they're kind of sp- spreading the love around, it seems. Uh, you guys have any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I guess um, one theory I have is that, you know, uh, by spreading their, their bets around, they're, they're reducing their risk. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen that uh, in the early days quite a bit with a lot of EV developments and automakers partnering together on different designs. It does seem a little bit, uh, I guess, late in my mind to be uh, taking that approach still. Um, you know, I, I can imagine doing it for like fuel cells at this point, but the EV market seems pretty robust. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm wondering you know, where, where Honda is really uh, trying to put its foot down, if they're still thinking that EVs are, are questionable. You're on mute, uh, Saji. 
Sorry, yeah. Um, I also think, yes, it's, it's interesting, uh, Honda's activity in EV. So, so actually, um, it is also something I was going to talk about a bit later as well, um, somewhat related um, uh, news and, and them uh, expanding their operations in uh, um, electric micromobility in, in particular. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, probably through all of their um, uh, vehicle segments, I, I think they've, they've probably, they may be a bit late, late to, to the party, but uh, I, I think they've realised it's, um, it, it's an important place, space for them to be playing in. Yeah, you know, you're, I think you're both, I think you're all right. Um, you know, it, it, it does seem to be a little bit late to making be making so many different bets because, you know, now you're having to invest um, in multiple different platforms. Uh, you know, unless, unless Honda and Sony, in the, as part of their joint venture, are going to be using the Honda developed EV platform that was supposed to launch in 2026, um, I'm not sure that... It, makes sense to, to have so much diversity um, of, of different architectures that they're using, especially given the nature of EV architectures where you tend to have a lot more commonality and it, it, EV platforms can scale more easily from smaller to larger vehicles. Uh, you know, you look at Volkswagen, for, exa- for example, with their MEB platform that is going to run from, uh, you know, smaller vehicles like the ID3 and, and even something smaller than that, all the way up to the ID Buzz and, and other larger vehicles. Um, or, you know, GM with their Altium architecture that, you know, is going from, you know, the Chevy Equinox to the GMC Hummer. Uh, there's there, there's a lot of shared componentry there. And, and, you know, if they're doing different things with each one of these programs, that, that doesn't really seem like it makes economic sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, also, what I think is interesting is is Sony's uh, involvement in this. Um, I think it was last year that they were they were working on a project with uh, I think it was Yamaha for an automated uh, shuttle bus that they were operating in in Japan somewhere. Um, in in uh, on an I think it was in Okinawa, in fact. And so the concept there was that I think Yamaha developed the, the vehicle, whereas Sony provided uh, an augmented reality experience for, for the passengers as they were transported from. Um, Probably the city to, to, to the uh, to the holiday resort that they were staying at, and so they were um, rather than having windows, they had some some kind of augmented reality screen, so they could see a little bit outside. But there was there was there was various things superimposed to give information on on where they were going, or also I think there was some kind of entertainment uh, functionalities that they could perhaps watch movies or, or and uh, I think there was some kind of Halloween experience which they they did uh, at some point last year. So. So Sony certainly have a, a keen interest in being involved on, on in um, the automated uh, automotive space as well. Yeah, I mean Sony's been supplying various components and systems to the auto industry for some time. They've done audio systems um, and uh, and other things, and they, and they they showed they've shown at, at CES in 2020, and then again this year they showed two different full vehicle EV concepts. Um, and, you know, for some reason they seem to want to get into the, the automaking space, but not entirely clear why, um, but, uh, all right. Um, anything else on the Honda Sony deal? All right. Um, Scott, what have you got? Yeah. So, um, uh, earlier in this week, um, uh, Mercedes Benz truck. Uh, which is a brand of Daimler truck um, operating in, in Europe. They 
uh, announced that they'll be uh, presenting the eActros long haul um, concept at an upcoming conference, IAA. And it's, it's interesting because there have been a lot of conversations about the future of long haul trucking and uh, kind of a conversation about which fuel the industry is going to go towards hydrogen or, or electricity. And with this announcement, Mercedes-Benz is definitely not, or Mercedes-Benz truck is definitely not, you know, deciding which fuel is, is going to be there because they're making investments across the board in, in hydrogen and electric, but they are presenting sort of uh, an interesting approach for electric for long haul. Um, so some specifics on the vehicle include a range of about 500 kilometers, um, LFP battery uh, to uh, LFP is, is a more durable battery. Um, and so uh, they're looking at um, basically an improved uh, uh, cycle life of the battery um, over its life. But they're also pairing that LFP battery with the expectation that it's going to be charged uh, with megawatt chargers. And that's a charging standard that has only come out recently. Um, and they're expecting to, to deploy that um, as part of a, a joint venture with uh, a few other truck automakers in, in the EU. And so ultimately, they would look to test this technology in 2023 and then start series production in 2024. So some of the specs kind of allude to um, what they're expecting the use case of this vehicle to be, specifically that you would uh, drive it for around 500 kilometers, and that distance would equate to about four and a half hours of driving time. And per EU regulations, the drivers would have to stop and take at least a 45-minute break, at which point they would be able to charge their truck add a megawatt charger to full, um, and then complete the next 500 kilometers or so. Um, so it's, um, it, it presents a, a case in which, you know, the limited range of, uh, of electric vehicles, especially in the long haul segment might be able to, to fit into that long haul use case, um, with, a charging infrastructure with the um, with the megawatt charging system that is uh, soon become available and and deployed in both North America and Europe. Uh, so it's it's interesting on a few of those different points, um, specifically what range uh, Mercedes-Benz trucks thinks that uh, is is going to be you know sort of the minimum viable product to make long haul trucking electrified. Um, alongside that infrastructure solution of, of megawatt charging. Um, so, uh, and then the other component is, is the use of, of LFP that's uh, an emerging, or it's not really emerging, it's been around in, in the industry for, for a while, um, but use of that technology for, for the truck, I think has a few different advantages. Um, also some detractors uh, when it comes to um, energy density. Uh, so I think there's a little more to come out on, on how that technology pairs well um, in, this, uh, in this particular use case. Uh, but uh, ultimately, I think it's the first uh, sort of indication of uh, where 
that long haul or what that long haul solution is is going to look like when it comes to being electrified. So, um, when when is this truck going to be available on the market, and and when uh, uh, when will uh, megawatt chargers start to be deployed uh, commercially? Yeah, so the truck um, it's going to go undergo customer testing in twenty twenty three, and they have stated that the series production will begin in twenty twenty four. Um, so yeah, I would assume that you start to see these vehicles actually deployed in real world situations, 2020, late 2024, 2025, something like that. Um, in terms of the development of that megawatt charging network, um, there are developments underway now for heavy duty vehicle charging at 350 kW, um, which is not megawatt charging, uh, but it is getting the built infrastructure in place for megawatt charging technologies. So Electrify America, um, as well as this JV in Europe have been talking about rolling out um, the initial charging networks for heavy duty trucks based off of more of a 350 kW um, design right now. Um, megawatt charging has just recently kind of debuted. Um, so, you know, it's hard, hard to say what exactly would be in place by the time these trucks come online. Um, so like in that 2024, 2025 period, I would assume we're looking at a few stations deployed along the main routes, like maybe, uh, just a, a smattering of stations, just the early, uh, basically pilot routes. Um, my expectation is that 2025 to 2030 is when you see a ramp in megawatt charging deployments to service these vehicles, but it's going to be tied to very local deployments of, of electric trucks for these long haul routes around the main corridors. Um, hard to say exactly when, um, megawatt charging will be deployed, but, uh, the, the building blocks are there for its deployment now. Um, uh, but I wouldn't expect anything until we're, we're closer to seeing these vehicles actually enter use. It's interesting that they're choosing to use uh, an LFP, a lithium iron phosphate battery uh, for this truck, given that um, LFP has a lower energy density uh, than uh, nickel-based, nickel-rich batteries. Um, did they give any, aside from the durability, um, did they give any other reasoning, um, why they, they chose that, uh, despite, you know, needing a not insignificant range, you know, three, you know, 500 kilometers, 300 miles is still fairly significant for a large truck. Um, mm -hmm. why, why did they go with the LFP? Was there anything besides the, the durability? Yeah, well, I think it's mostly the durability. Um, they do allude to the LFP battery having more usable energy. Um, but I would, uh, I would assume that is a little bit misleading when it comes to the fact that it had typically LFP has lower energy density than NMC. Um, so what I assume they're talking about is that if you have a um, hundred kilowatt hour battery, you're just able to use more of it um, than if it were this, the 100 kilowatt hour for NMC. 
regardless of that, I think that LF, use of LFP here comes down to pairing it with megawatt charging. Um, so the durability component, uh, I would assume, is, uh, is stronger when being uh, charged with a megawatt of power or more. Because um, that's where you can really see the greatest impacts on battery life is when you are charging it at very high rates, you're, you're bound to see more degradation. So I, I would say that it, it's primarily a decision of, um, of durability in the face of the expected charging power they're likely to see with this vehicle. Well, one possible advantage of LFP batteries, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, is um, so I know um, with uh, Teslas that some of their vehicles um, have LFP batteries. And for those particular vehicles, uh, Tesla actually recommend that they charge those to 100% uh, as opposed to, let's say, 70 to 80% for, for, for other battery types. So I'm, I'm not sure if perhaps, um, yeah, for long haul trucks, it, it, it may be recommended that they could fully charge it, or maybe this is some Tesla anomaly um, just covering up some 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 other um, technology in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it has more to do with charging than than anything. Um, the design of this truck basically to be um, to get its charge and then go. Um, you want a more durable battery than I would say if they were designing it around sort of the depot model, depot charging model, they might aim to do something more with an NMC, which is going to give you a higher energy density um, so that with your slower rate of charge on a potentially less durable battery, you would be able to go farther. Um, so it's, it's an interesting optimization problem. Great. All right, Saji, what have you got this week? Yeah, so, um, yeah, as I mentioned, um, I'm also going to mention uh, Honda, um, but um, they recently announced uh, that they they, they launched a a dedicated micro-mobility arm um, called Striemo, if if I pronounced that correctly. Um, So this has emerged from, they have like a a business um, incubation unit called Ignition, and and this is one one of the uh, the, the first... uh, uh, businesses which has uh, emerged from that. Um, so Striemo has, um, uh, they've, they've very recently also announced that um, they've developed a, a three-wheeled um, electric uh, e-scooter, so uh, an e-kick scooter, um, which is also called Striemo. Um, so they're looking to um, to launch that in Japan later this year and uh, in Europe and the US uh, ne- next year. Um, so this is a, an interesting design um, from Honda in that it's, it's a three-wheeled kick scooter. Um, it's got t- t- two wheels at the back. And um, it has um, some kind of um, gyroscopic uh, s- stabilization system. So it means that um, uh, the, the riders of the e-scooters are, um, are always upright uh, when the, the vehicle is uh, tilting through, through turns. Um, so the, the vehicle is very stable. Um, and also the vehicle is very um, controllable and smooth over... At, at very low speeds, which is often an issue with um, with e-scooters. Um, so in many places where you're uh, allowed to ride e-scooters on pavements or on sidewalks, um, at very low speeds where there's lots of uh, pedestrians, um, they're typically very jerky and, and difficult, difficult to control, which which is which, which poses a problem for for, uh, for pedestrians. 
Uh, so furthermore, the, um, uh, the, the e-scooter, it, it's foldable. Um, it's, it's fairly hefty at 20 kilograms, but it can be wheeled on, on its, uh, transported on its re- rear two wheels by just being dragged along if you're walking. Um, has a range of around 30 kilometers. Um, it has um, a, a battery which is, which is uh, removable. Um, it's not clear at this moment whether or not uh, 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 battery swapping is an option. Um, however, Honda is part of the, the, the swappable batteries consortium um, with, with some of the major um, uh, e-motorcycle uh, manufacturers. Um, and um, yeah, I think this is interesting um, from, uh, from a Honda perspective. Um, as, as we mentioned earlier, um, it's showing uh, Honda's uh, um, uh, expanding ambitions to be involved in e-mobility in, in different uh, vehicle segments. Um, and I, I think that this unusual design of e-scooter is, is addressing some of the, the major um, concerns of e-scooters, such as safety. Um, so I think anecdotally I've heard that you know, one of the main reasons for injuries and, and, uh, and, and, and fatalities on e-scooters is when they topple over. So this probably a- addresses that. Um, and also, yeah, the, the nuisance complaints from p- pedestrians uh, when, when they maneuver on, pay- on sidewalks. Um, but I, I think you know, Honda probably seen that there's a big commercial opportunity in e-scooters. Um, although I think it's a very dynamic situation at the moment. Um, so in the UK, for example, we've just announced that um, e-scooters will, 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 become, will be legally allowed to be ridden uh, on the streets. Um, and Japan as well. Um, they very recently uh, announced the legalization of, uh, of e-scooters. Um, but in many other cities, um, yeah, city authorities are clamping down their usage because they've become a bit of a nuisance. Uh, they've been reducing the numbers of uh, e-scooters in, in various parts of cities because there's just too many of them and they're just being dumped all over the place. Um, and yeah, some cities, are, they're still banned, notably Amsterdam, where um, uh, d- despite being really big on uh, e-micromobility, um, e-scooters are not permitted. Um, and uh, also in Australia, in, in uh, Queensland in particular, that they've started to clamp down on, on people speeding. So they're actually um, enforcing uh, speeding with speed cameras or radar cameras to, uh, to, to catch people who are, who are traveling too fast. So, um, so I think it's, it's uh, an interesting opportunity for, for, for Honda, but yeah, uh, probably a number of, 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 uh, of challenges for uh, global adoption there. It's interesting. It seems like there's uh, a lot of different takes to it with some places seeing a lot of opportunity for, for scooters to, to handle mobility issues in, in cities and other places to not or, or to, to regulate them out of their cities. Um, and it's striking with, with Amsterdam. And I wonder if there's maybe sort of a relationship between the, the existing um, infrastructure system of the city. So for instance, Amsterdam already has so, so much bike usage that, you know, introducing a new technology is, is not really going to, to change maybe some of the patterns that are already really sustainable. Whereas um, in other places that are more interested in adoption, they just need some new technology to help get them towards maybe more sustainable use. Is that, would you say, close to what's happening or? I think so. I mean, that, that, that could be very accurate. Um, certainly, yeah, in the Netherlands, they have very good infrastructure for micro-mobility. Um, and, and in places like Amsterdam, it, 
I would say that um, the number of bikes is actually probably too much to also accommodate uh, yeah. e-scooters unless unless people are, are then um, dropping their bikes for, for scooters. Um, but I think I think also safety. I think is, is I, I think is, is the biggest issue in micro mobility. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I've heard, heard in, in the Netherlands is that the reason that they became banned was because of a couple of uh, of, of, of uh, fatalities uh, on the roads. And um, and even in the UK, uh, where they're not technically legal apart from some certain uh, trials, um, there have been a number of accidents um, which are you know far exceeds their their proportion of, of vehicles on the road um so um so yeah i think those could be some of the, the, the key factors in, in you know which cities are permitting and uh which are not permitting e-scooters uh, i'm curious um in amsterdam are e-bikes allowed yeah yeah and yeah they're very common yeah uh, you know, from a from a traffic perspective, you know, it, it does seem a little odd. You know, I mean, there's you know, there's a limited number of people, and you know, it's it seems like you know, if someone's going to use an e-scooter. You know, they they're probably it's going to be uh, a zero sum game. You know, they're going to use one or the other. It doesn't seem like you're necessarily going to have a a tremendous increase by allowing uh, e-scooters. Um, but I, I can see the the safety case. Um, where, uh, you know, there might be more concerns with safety with scooters as opposed to bicycles. Yeah, I, I think another interesting factor, which is very variable from, from, from country to country, is that sometimes they're permitted to ride on bike, bike lanes, uh, sometimes not. Like I think in the Netherlands, they were not permitted to ride there, so they had to ride with the, with the cars. Um, also, sometimes they're permitted to ride on, on sidewalks uh, and, and sometimes not. Um, so, so I think, yeah, the, these, these kind of variations as well, um, uh, yeah, impact whether or not they're, they're adopted or, or permitted in, in each city or, or, or country. Okay. All right. Anything else? All right. Um, I'm going to address, uh, last week, um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration here in the U.S., uh, finally released the first tranche of data uh, that came from a standing general order they issued in July or June June of 2021, uh, where they mandated that all automakers and uh, developers of automated driving systems had to report uh, any data on any crashes that occurred with level two or above uh, driving systems. So. Um, level two is a system where the vehicle is capable of controlling both speed and direction. Um, so that this includes systems like General Motors Super Cruise and uh, Nissan's ProPilot, which may or may not, you know, in the case of Super Cruise, it's a hands-free system. ProPilot is a hands-on system. Tesla Autopilot, also a hands-on system that manages both speed and direction. Um, and you know, also going all the way up to level four or five systems. And um, they've, NHTSA has never previously um, required this information to be submitted. And in the past, when I've asked various automakers, you know, how many, if any, crashes have occurred with their, uh, their driver assist systems like, uh, like Super Cruise, they've always declined to, <laughs> to comment on that. So it was great to finally see some actual data from this. Uh, so this was... Um, Data submitted between um, June of last year and or, uh, July of, of 2021 and May of 20, 
22. So first 11 months of this program. Um, and they split up the data uh, between um, uh, level two driver assistance systems and then what they're terming as automated driving systems, which would be level three and four. Um, the level two systems in particular were interesting because this is where all of Tesla's systems uh, come in. And Tesla, you know, while they're far from having the most vehicles with driver assist systems on the road, um, and you know, certainly not the only manufacturer, uh, they've gotten the most attention. And um, one of the interesting parts of the the mandate from the regulators was that they not only had to re- they had to report on any crash where the the ADAS was active up to 30 seconds before. So it could be active at the time of the impact or any time in, in a 30-second window prior to the impact, um, which, you know, this has been one of the, the longstanding questions around Tesla Autopilot in particular. There have been many reports where drivers uh, got into a crash and they said that they had Autopilot active, uh, but uh, Tesla, when they looked at their telemetry data, said, nope, Autopilot was not active at the time of the impact. Tesla is one of those companies like GM that has never previously responded to questions about when was the system active prior to the impact? Um, because, you know, this, this points, you know, to issues with the, the human machine interface in the vehicle, you know, is the vehicle clearly communicating to drivers that, you know, what mode it's in, you know, that the system is active or not. And um, of 367 crashes of ADAS systems, 273 involved Tesla vehicles uh, with autopilot. And interestingly, uh, at least 16 of those crashes, the autopilot deactivated less than one second prior to impact. Um, Unfortunately, um, NHTSA allowed the manufacturers to um, flag certain bits of data that they submitted as uh, company business uh, or confidential business information. Um, so in the public report, that information, even though it was submitted to NHTSA, NHTSA has the data, that information was redacted from the public report. And um, Tesla, you know, part, part of the data, you know, they had to submit uh, was, you know, what type of system was on there, uh, where was the, da- you know, were there any injuries, what was the damage on the vehicle, and, you know, a description of the crash. And all 273 Tesla crashes were redacted uh, from the descriptions. So we don't actually know what happened with those vehicles. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that this is a, a good um, start uh, for the industry. And I think, you know, I think it's important to have, this, have transparency so that people understand and regulators can understand the actual effectiveness of these systems as we go forward. You know, are they, you know, there's a, you know, the, we all expect that these systems should be safer than human drivers alone, but you know we don't we haven't had any actual evidence to that effect up till now, and so this is the first indicator we, we're seeing of the, the real effectiveness of these systems. So hopefully uh, going forward, maybe uh, NHTSA will at least require the descriptions to be made public as part of their reporting, which apparently they're going to start doing on a monthly or, or perhaps bi-monthly basis going forward. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more of these reports and, and learning how good or not these systems actually are. So Sam, in, 
in terms of the redacted in information, does that mean we don't have any visibility as to the severity of, of the crashes or the accident? Um, so we do have information on, you know, whether there were any injuries. Um, we have information on, um, you know, where on the vehicle there might've been damage, physical damage. Uh, but we don't, you know, um, we don't know, uh, anything about, uh, you know, what, you know, any sort of description about what happened, you know, did the vehicle run off the road by itself? Did it run into another vehicle? Uh, in most of the, the Tesla related crashes, they were, the damage to the Tesla vehicles was, uh, front damage, front and front end damage, uh, indicating that they ran into something else. Um, you know, very little, uh, rear end damage indicating that they were, uh, run into by some other vehicle, which is the opposite of what we have for the automated driving systems. Most of the crashes with automated driving systems, um, you know, the largest number of those were with Waymo vehicles because they have the most of these vehicles on the road. And most of those involved rear impacts, uh, where some other vehicle ran into the automated vehicle, um, but uh, in the case of Tesla, as I said, most of the impact was on the front, indicating they ran into something. Um, and you know, Gia or uh, NHTSA has you know recently expanded their investigation of Tesla autopilot um, and crashes involving that. So I think you know what we're what we're likely to see going forward is the start of a regulatory process for these systems that hopefully will involve setting some standards for performance. You know, for some way to evaluate the effectiveness of these systems, as we do with uh, with crash testing and uh, brake systems and lighting systems, um, and I think it's important that we start, you know, having setting some standards for the capability of these systems, and then um, uh, you know possibly uh, at some point even mandating uh, that you know once we get to a point where the systems are demonstrated to be effective, actually mandate that some of these systems be required on new vehicles. Yeah. With, um, so it sounded like, uh, Tesla had the line share of data pertaining to level two systems. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then was there, uh, any other notable automakers on, on the L2? Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the next highest number interestingly was from Honda who does not market their vehicles as having an L2 capability. Um, Honda ve- most new Honda vehicles have uh, lane keeping assistance, which is not the same. It's, it's not as uh, capable as a lane centering system. So all that is doing is trying to detect if you're drifting out of the lane and it will nudge the vehicle back into the lane uh, and also adaptive cruise control. Um, and unlike systems like autopilot and super cruise, the, the steering and speed control are not integrated systems. They're two separate systems that, can operate independently of each other. Um, so it's arguable whether, you know, these Honda vehicle crashes should have even been included in this number. Uh, there were 90 crashes with Honda vehicles and uh, none of those were redacted. So I actually did read through the descriptions and, you know, pretty much all of those involved, um, you know, were the, the, the description of the crash uh, indicated that it actually had nothing to do with the driver assist system. It was, you know, a vehicle that happened to have adaptive cruise control active, went through an intersection, 
and a, a vehicle ran a, a stop sign and ran into it, you know, or some some other type of crash that was unrelated to the fact that the the ADAS was active at that time. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. I had a question about uh, regulations around the human to machine interface. Is there any uh-huh. uh, proposed regulations or existing regulations around uh, what that what that on and off switch might be for the self driving? Uh, Right now, there are no regulations, um, at least not in the U.S. Um, there are some guidelines, you know, for for HMI around uh, things like uh, touchscreens. You know, how, you know, not you know, you shouldn't be doing anything on a touchscreen that takes more than like three to five seconds, uh, or involves more than like five taps um, of the screen. Um, but you know, none of those are formal federal motor vehicle safety standards. Uh, in Europe, um, for as part of the Euro NCAP, the Euro New Car Assessment Program, where they, they give the, the five-star safety ratings, um, they are, from 2023, going to require that vehicles um, with, uh, with ADAS have driver monitor systems in order to get, uh, that's going to be one of the requirements to get a five-star score. And um, here in the U.S., um, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety that does the Top Safety Pick Plus and does a lot of crash testing, and also um, the DOT for the U.S. New Car Assessment Program are going to be revising their standards for their scoring. Um, so they're actually going to be start testing uh, these ADAS systems to see you know if they if they really work, and you know also looking at including things like driver monitoring. Um, to, to see, you know, to make sure that the driver is still watching the road for systems like level two, where, where it's, where the driver is still supposed to be paying attention to the road. It's not, it's, it's not an eyes off system. Um, so that's, that's about all we've got at the moment. Um, I suspect in the next few years, we will start to see some of that, um, uh, some, some sort of regulations around the human machine interface though. Yeah, I, th- I think it was yeah re- really interesting. Um, yeah, those insights, especially on the, on the level two systems, um, and 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 also you mentioned how um, um, you know, many of the drivers who are involved in these incidents they they, they believe that the, um, uh, the uh, some kind of ADAS system was on, but in fact uh, it, it was not, or so it was turned off yeah, a fraction of a second b- before the incidents. And so yeah, I think that there's 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 some challenge around that handover of control back to the back to the driver, and so um, and yeah, and just from personal experience, I, I think when, when the system when the self driving uh, systems get into trouble, then they will they will switch responsibility back to the driver. But but that's also you know the, you know, the, the most challenging period when um, there is a, an immediate hazard or 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 a risk of, a, of of some kind of a collision. Yeah, um, you know that that handoff is is a real challenge, and also uh, an, another point about the the human machine interface um, is how you indicate to the driver, and this is and and also the way these systems are branded. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why there have been so many crashes with Tesla vehicles is because calling the system autopilot, um, you know, implies to a lot of people that uh, the system is you know more capable than it really is. Yeah, and, and autopilot is actually a very capable ADAS system. Yeah, it's as, it's as good as many of the other systems on the market, but uh, it um, the naming 
um, implies that it has, is more capable. And I think that there's uh, there's a a greater perception among Tesla drivers of their their system of their vehicles being closer to self driving than they actually are. And so you have I think you have we have probably have more Tesla drivers that are not paying the same attention to the road that they should be. Um, and because Tesla does not use, for example, capacitive sensors in the steering wheel to detect that hands are on the wheel and they don't use the driver monitor system to keep make sure eyes are on the road, um, there's more likelihood that the, the driver's attention is going to waver uh, and they're not going to be ready to take over control when they, when they need to. And they may not even be aware of it because of the interface. Whereas if you look at something like GM Super Cruise, they use a colored light bar in the top of the top portion of the steering wheel. Uh, they use haptic feedback, um, and they have a, an infrared camera that monitors the driver. So if the driver is, looks away from the road for more than a few seconds, then the system will start to alert the driver with audible and, and haptic feedback, and the light bar in the steering wheel will go from green to red. So it, it's very clear in the, in GM vehicles what mode the system's in when it's in, when it's blue when the bar is blue then the system is ready but not active. When it's green, it's active and controlling the, the steering and speed. And when it's red, it's alerting the driver to take back control. Uh, and that they have the best HMI, I think, of any of these systems. And um, you know, I think other manufacturers should be emulating that. All right, well, that's it for this week. Um, thanks everybody for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.